everyone. Welcome to episode 2126 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm doing all right. We got a double-barreled Midwest team preview for people today. Oh, is baby. That, is that controversial to call Cleveland Midwest? Is that divisive? I've, I've seen no. some people maybe express some minute. reservations about that. Wait, they don't think that... What? Wait, what? I've seen some people draw distinctions of some parts of Ohio or even Cleveland itself that maybe Cleveland is more northeast as opposed to, say, oh Columbus, stars. let's say. I mean, we're getting <sighs> granular here, but look, I'm no authority on what constitutes Midwest or not. So if I offended anyone by wow. either calling Cleveland Midwest or, or calling it. into question yeah. that Cleveland might be Midwest, I apologize. I have no opinion on this subject. I'm just aware that there are differing opinions uh, okay so like here's my take on this one i'm not from there so what do i know but that seems uh silly to me now i am interested in the part of this argument that puts the people who want to say that pittsburgh is in the midwest in a corner facing mm. the wall so like that knock-on effect is interesting to me you're not from the midwest you're from the state of pennsylvania that's not the midwest it's a, it's a state that does this doesn't make any sense it touches <laughs> other doesn't matter <laughs> I have heard people wanting to make an argument that the southern parts of that state are like touching up against like being southern, maybe. Mm -hmm. But like, this, oh, Cleveland's in the Midwest. Are there people? Ben, you just <laughs> derailed my entire day. My whole day is now over there, far <laughs> away from where it was. Because. <laughs> It's not I'm the Northeast. Saying, no, it's, it's maybe just not the most Midwest. I don't know. People have strong feelings about what, what is Midwest and what is not. And I do not. They and do. And and a lot of them are silly, the arguments. <laughs> they're they're go they're go they're goof ass arguments. Ben. <laughs> okay. I don't want to overstate the degree that people argue this, but oh, I have so heard it. Emails. This is not something we will <laughs> cover on our team preview for the uh -huh. Cleveland Guardians. I don't necessarily need emails on this subject. Oh, they, we're going to get them anyway. What are you talking about? People, you know, regional <laughs> difference is like, you can't put that out in the world and then not expect to get emails about it. It, it would be like trying to define generations more precisely and being like, no one will have an opinion about this. Yeah, I, I'm not personally expressing an oh opinion is the thing that I want to clarify here. Uh -huh. <laughs> but okay. we will be talking about the Guardians. We will also be talking about the St. Louis Cardinals. No question that the Cardinals are Midwest. Although now am I going to anger oh Cleveland people by, by calling the Cardinals the St. Louis more Midwest, more oh authentically Midwest? Oh I just waded God. into just all Such types of trouble murky, here. dark territory. <laughs> <laughs> this oh, is a baseball Lord. podcast, not a geography podcast. I didn't have to go there. I was just trying you to. Didn't, but you just like made a big choice. <laughs> I know. I regret it now. I try to draw parallels between the teams that we preview on these team preview pods, even though there's no order to it. It's just mm -hmm. what the projections said when we drew this thing up. And yet I try to draw little parallels to make it seem as if we had a plan. Right. And then I thought maybe I should couch that a little bit. And then I thought maybe I shouldn't have couched that. Anyway, here we are. We'll be talking to Katie Wu of The Athletic about the Cardinals shortly. And after Katie, we will talk to Mandy Bell of MLB.com about the Cleveland Guardians. Now, before we get to our previews, there was some, I don't know whether it was big news. I think it was portrayed as big news, even though when I saw the news, 
I sort of yawned or didn't mm-hmm. consider it that meaningful or that significant. Rob Manfred said in inimitable Rob Manfred kind of confusing <laughs> fashion, just sort of dropping this in the middle of a press uh-huh. conference, that he will not be seeking another term as commissioner, that he intends this current term. He was extended last year for another five-year term, right. and his current term expires in January of 2029. Right. And he says that he will step down at that point. Now, sort of big news in the sense that he's the commissioner of baseball, but Sort of not big news right. in the sense that this is, again, almost five years from now. So, right. I mean, A, I don't know what I would have put the odds at that Rob Manfred would not be commissioner after 2029, but there would have been some significant chance before he made this announcement. Right. And even after he made this announcement, there's some significant chance that he will continue to be commissioner. So, also I don't true. know that this uh, moves the needle that much for me. It is kind of curious that he announced this now and we can talk about why that is but there's precedent with his predecessor Bud Selig who multiple times said that he would be stepping down at a certain time and then did not and look Bud Selig for all the negative things you can say about Bud Selig I, I think most people don't question his affection for baseball people do question that about Rob Manfred yeah and so I, I guess you could say oh Bud loved baseball so much he was just gonna cling to that gig and he was gonna serve into his 80s and Manfred will be a mere 70 years old spring right. chicken compared to Bud Selig when he was done and will he be content walking away at that point I'm just saying so much could happen between now and then that I don't really read that much into this. He could have a change of heart. I mean, he could be driven out because of bad stuff that happens in baseball between now and then. There's a whole new CBA negotiation between now and then. I mean, that is so far away that I don't even know how much to make of this. I mean, like he he will be in, uh, he will be retirement age. She's retirement age yeah, now, no, Ben, it's, you know? It's, it's not unusual to yeah. <laughs> say, like, I'll be done when I'm 70 years old and yeah, I've done this job I, for a long time. I feel like he should retire, not because I'm making a big statement about Rob Manfred as, like, a commissioner, although we're going to make some additional statements about Rob Manfred as a commissioner in a second here, but, like, be a hero and retire, because, you know, <laughs> we might not get to, Ben, so someone should, you know, just to, like, have it there's proof of concept maybe but yeah it's a it's a weird weird, i was like tomorrow or you like i i expected to hear uh, you know that he was like sick or something and he's gonna step no he's like Mm -mm. in a while i might not work and it's like well yeah you know (laughs) you're like 65 so (laughs) okay yeah right so the other reason why it wasn't that momentous to me is that I don't know that the next guy will be any better. You know? Right. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, some people are like ding dong, the witch is dead kind of reaction yeah. to this news. I think Rob Manfred has done a lot of bad things. I think he's done some good things. Mm-hmm. I think ultimately he's a commissioner. Like right. this is what commissioners do. People who think that the next commissioner will be totally different from Rob Manfred may just not understand the gig right. and the assignment yeah. here. Right. So – A, we have no idea who the next commissioner will be. It's not like there's some commissioner in waiting here who we're all penciling into that job. Maybe it'll be Morgan Sword. Morgan! Maybe he could be commissioner. Who knows? Maybe Theo Epstein will come back and become commissioner. But really, no one has any idea. How could you this far out? 
And I have no particular hope that the next commissioner will be meaningfully better. Mm -mm. So it's kind of like, okay, you know, the owners will hire someone else to represent their interests in five years. Maybe that person will be better at PR. Right. And, and, you know, we can talk in a second about um, being bad at PR uh, and how uh, tight Rob Manfred likes to hold that concept because, boy, does he um, have his moments, including at this press conference. But the fundamental thing that is going to dictate the priorities of the commissioner's office that will influence the stance and sort of posture that they take toward labor is the ownership groups. And there's not going to be a fundamental change there. Team owners come and go, of course, but, you know, sort of as a demographic, there's a type (laughs) there. So, you know, absent something radical shifting in uh, the way that sort of team owners understand their teams and their priorities as business folk, I I don't imagine that stuff is going to go all that differently with the next commissioner. You might have someone in that seat who has, like you said, sort of a better feel for PR. And there might be like real differences that can be had there in terms of how they present themselves to the public and to the Players Association. But like fundamentally, the groups that matter the most in this stuff don't, you know, they don't change all that often. So I don't really expect it to be all that different. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I do wonder if he is looking at this. I don't know how much he cares about legacy or anything, but he's relatively riding high in some respects coming sure. off the rules changes, successes and the pitch clock. Of course, there's the A's situation hanging over his head here and sort of soiling his reputation. But maybe he's looking ahead now again like who knows maybe there's another work stoppage between now and then maybe i was gonna say yeah he's totally disgraced and the sport is a flaming wreck at that point like who who has any idea right but maybe he's optimistically looking at it because one way or another he will have been a commissioner who presided over some momentous change in baseball good or bad and You will presumably be able to say he brought in the pitch clock. He brought in some form of robot umps and ABS system by that point. Now he is, of course, confronting the fairly major challenge right now, if not existential, of broadcast and streaming and how are sports leagues going to handle that. He intimated in this press conference that maybe it will not be an MLB-owned and operated streaming service that comes out of this on the other side, or maybe they outsource that or they give the rights or it's branded with someone else so that it's not sort of an MLB TV situation exactly. So that was semi-interesting. But like, if he figures out that problem as best it can be figured out and he affects some meaningful change from a rules perspective, then who knows? He might be remembered more for that than for calling the championship trophy a hunk of metal or whatever, right? Like, who knows? Because Bud Selig is remembered for his term coinciding with the PED era and how he responded or didn't respond to that. And commissioners are always kind of associated with scandals and cheating that happens on their watch. And obviously Manfred is with the Astros and the whole sign stealing mess too. But let's say that he implements ABS, that that goes fairly smoothly, that by then this is 
by that year, the A's are supposed to be in Las Vegas, right? So Mm -hmm. if that's the case, I know that he wants to sort out expansion. It's not going to be able to happen by 2029, but you could have concrete plans for expansion teams by then, if not actual teams playing. And so maybe he's hoping, hey, five years from now, I'll just be golden and I will have fixed the baseball rules and we will have no troublesome ballpark situations, assuming that Las Vegas doesn't immediately become a troublesome ballpark situation if the A's are in fact in Las Vegas. But, you know, maybe like if expansion is happening at that point, that might be a good time to ride off into the sunset. But who knows? Yeah, I think that it's hard to anticipate exactly what the like sort of final impression he will leave in the the minds of fans is. You know, you highlighted a number of things that are sort of on the the positive and negative side of the ledger for him in terms of legacy, but I don't know. I think a lot of it's going to be determined by as you said what happens with the TV situation and I, you know, I've said this before, I actually think that they have been surprisingly and laudably nimble when it comes to trying to sort out the streaming and um, linear cable question. And so that does seem like an area where he might end up um, being able to sort of distinguish himself from a legacy perspective. But we are going to have another CBA negotiation to live through before he leaves office. And so the opportunities are just going to be bountiful for him to put his foot right in his mouth. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I don't know. I think a lot is going to depend on that. And I think some of the things that have most most mattered in terms of our impression of the commissioner have been things that have been hard to anticipate in advance, right? Like we didn't see the Astro sign stealing scandal coming. We didn't see the, uh, you know, a, the league having to react to the resumption of play under a global pandemic coming, mm-hmm. who knows what the things are going to be, right? Like it's just yeah. hard to, it's hard to know this far in advance, which is right. maybe that's why he was like, Hey, start thinking about it for five years. Oh, no, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bud Selig is still remembered for a tie in the all-star game. Who cares about that? Ultimately, right? That I'd is rather not be... one of the things I remember Bud Selig for <laughs> no. actually. Well, I think people do, but, yeah, he he affected much more meaningful change yeah. that was good in some ways and and really bad in some ways. But yeah. but that's an image of him like standing there, kind of frozen in the All Star game, not knowing how to handle that yeah. crisis. I guess if we were to call it that. And of course, you know, he wanted the All Star game to count at everything. That was one yeah. of his things. So I guess given he had things. pushed that, then it it is fair to judge him by that. I'd rather be remembered for a game that ended in a tie than be remembered for a zombie runner rule that uh, supplants a potential tie as a way to end games, right? Yeah. Uh, That's a a better legacy. I'll always remember Rob Manfred for the zombie runner. So that's that's just a stain on his legacy that he cannot overcome between now and 2029, I don't think really. But (laughs) all I'm saying is, I mean, I hope the next commissioner is better at some aspects of the job, at least. And uh, I do give Manfred some credit for pushing a hidebound sport to update some aspects of itself that were in need of change over players' objections at times, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that was always one of his major talking points, and he followed through on that and did it in a way that didn't piss people off too much when it was actually happening. So I, I do give him credit for that. But yes, it would be nice if the next person is just a little bit better at representing 
himself and also the sport, the sport yeah. himself, I could say. Yeah. And that may not matter as much to the owners because, again, they care much more about are they making more money yeah. and are people beating up on Rob Manfred instead of them? So it might even right. serve their purposes at times. But in the sense that the commissioner is sort of a face of the sport and a spokesperson for the sport, even though I think people tend to look at the commissioner as some sort of impartial, just for the good of the game figure, which is right. not at all what the commissioner is. No. But that said, I think the commissioner could still do a better job of making the sport sound exciting than Rob Hanford has. I guess he had to walk a line because he did want things to change, and I think it had to change. And so he had to point out some of the potential problems in order to make the case that change was needed. And yet he didn't do that in a way that made you feel romantic about baseball. Yeah, I think that commissioner, you know, it's a it's a funny um, position to have expectations of because I do think that there and we've talked about this on the pod before, like his discomfort with the public facing part of his job and his proclivity to be kind of bad at PR uh, and being able to sort of anticipate, like, if I phrase this this way, it's going to be the soundbite that carries. It's a bummer in a way, because to your point, like, I, I would prefer that the person up there be a better steward and spokesperson for baseball as an endeavor. But I think in terms of the reality of that job and sort of the power that person has to impact the game... There is something useful to that, to Manfred being bad at that. Like, it is more revealing. He helps people realize that that person's job is to serve ownership and not to be an ombud person for the sport. Mm -hmm. That has value, even if I'm sure he wishes it were different. And if, you know, I'm sure that there are owners who are irritated by some of the, the headlines that have come out about him over the years. But their goal is to make money. And I think some of them care about great baseball a great deal. And I think that some of them view it as part of a uh, diversified portfolio of real estate holdings. And, mm -hmm. you know, keeping in mind that the person who sits in that seat is a good deal of the time going to have an antagonistic relationship with the players on the field is like productive for people understanding like what the what the real sort of power dynamics are within the game. So I, on the one hand, would like it if I didn't see uh, the commissioner be like, well, we have a major league team in the Bay Area. Why don't you just go root for the Giants, you dummies? He didn't say it quite like that. Let's be fair to him. But um, who maybe in the way he talked about the game demonstrated an understanding of what matters to the people who consume it uh, more than, than Manfred has at times. Mm -hmm. But I also think that having someone who in response to like how the league a uh, question about how the league plans to maintain a presence in Oakland says, first of all, we have a major league team in the Bay area. It's not like there is not an available option. The giants obviously still play there. It's like, Oh, so you don't understand what fandom is at all. Like this isn't something that is deeply felt for you in the same way that it is for, for fans, which isn't to say that Manfred hates baseball. I, I don't find a lot of value in that conversation because, like, ultimately, I don't know that it actually matters. And, like, who will know the heart of the man, right? But he's not slick. And I think mm -hmm. that when commissioners are better at that part, 
they can be kind of ensorceling to fans and it takes longer for fans to have a real understanding of what the stakes of say a CBA negotiation are or figuring out what to do with streaming versus cable versus our you know the RSN model like we we should be clear-eyed about this stuff because it affects the baseball that we see on the field. And when you mm-hmm. have someone like, say, Adam Silver, who I think for a long time was held up as this like paragon of what the commissioner should be, you know, there there cracks in that edifice now, and I think that that's useful. So mm-hmm. I'm going to say I'm not going to step up and say that was a good answer to that question. It's not a good answer, Ben. I don't, I don't think it was like a a bottom twenty Manfred public comment. Like, is that about the content of the answer or the 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 vastness of the library you have to choose from? A bit of both. Both. Okay. Because look, I don't know exactly how the question was worded. Evan Drellick sure. in his athletic piece writes: Manfred was also asked Thursday how MLB plans to continue serving fans in the Bay with the A's on the way out, and he said, "Well, we still have a team there." I mean, that's not the worst point to make, I feel like. I mean, if the question is like, well, how is baseball still going to have a presence in the Bay Area? I mean, they do have a team there. I mean, that's not going to make any A's fans feel better because it's not like A's fans are going to be like, oh, I'll just root for the Giants now. (laughs) But if that was what he was implying, then that's not going to happen. But I don't think it's totally ridiculous to mention that there is still a team in that area. And what else is he supposed to say? Like, what is a good answer to that question? There is no good answer to that question. I mean, they're leaving. They're leaving town. How is it going to continue serving fans? It's not. I mean, (laughs) that's pretty clear, right? Right. He he said some stuff about community involvement and youth programming, et cetera, et cetera, right? But like, I don't know that there's an answer to that question that's going to win anyone over because they have already driven everyone away. Right. I mean, maybe the the real sin here happened years ago, right? Yeah. Like, and you just can't overcome that. But I don't know, saying something to the effect of, you know, we we do have a an active and vibrant fan base here in the Bay, but we realize that, you know, we we do have to do some work to try to build a bridge to A's fans who feel rightly like their team has abandoned them. You know, mm-hmm. the problem is that he can just he, his role dictates that he not speak plainly about the behavior of ownership, right? right. Like and so you're you're right, I think to point out that there is sort of a fundamental there's a low ceiling on like how good an answer on something like this can be because he just it's not like he can say, yeah, man, like I'm going to do a, a swear. And again, mm-hmm. I want to clarify, this is not a direct quote from Rod Manfred. He can't be like, yeah, John Fisher's a real piece of shit, isn't he? Like he can't <laughs> say that. So mm-hmm. he is constrained. But I think that like an endeavor to extend a human empathy toward those experiencing disappointment, having that be at sort of the center of how one responds rather than like a defensive posture on behalf of his bosses would make for a better answer. But he kind of can't do that. So maybe yeah. I'm being maybe I'm being unfair, Ben. Maybe <laughs> could be maybe, true. Maybe in February 2029, after his term is over, then he'll come out and say, yeah, John Fisher was a real piece of shit that whole time yeah <laughs> do you think maybe we'll get the the manfred mask off just like yeah <laughs> like he does a roast on his way out and he's like yeah. and another thing <laughs> i no longer have to be the owner's toady and lackey here i'll yeah. just take my money and run and i can finally reveal all the things that i wanted to say all along i, I 
doubt it. I, I doubt think it. He's uh, hiding his true feelings all that much either. But it would be fun though. Yeah. Maybe he has like a Rodney Dangerfield impression that he wants to break out. Yeah. All right. Well. That was our weekend, Manfred. He also, of course, uh, pushed the deadline idea, the signing free terrible. agent winter. I agree that it's terrible, although I would say not Scott Boris's best work in response to that proposal because Scott Boris said deadlines are death lines to the players. It's a death of their right. Because a player goes all that time to earn the right to become a free yes. agent, it's an artificial reason not to get your value. I agree yep. with him. I stand with Scott on this issue, but yep. I don't know about the death lines. It's, uh, it conjures imagery that I would not apply to this situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe, but he's not wrong. Like, the the substance yeah. of his comment is accurate, even yeah. if the rhetorical flourishes. You know, Scott, like, strike dramatic. is over. Assemble a writer's room, why don't you? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, shall we get to our previews, which concern two teams in unspecified geographic regions of the United States? You're going (laughs) to get emails, and I'm not going to answer any of them, even the ones (laughs) who are from people who want to say that Pittsburgh is in the Midwest. That's unhinged, and I'm here to tell that truth, you know, and also to talk about the Guardians and the St. Louis Cardinals. Yes, let's do that. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with Katie Wu of The Athletic to discuss the Cardinals, followed by Mandy Bell of MLB.com on the Cleveland Guardians. A baseball podcast, analytics and stats, with Ben and Meg from Fangraphs. All right, we are joined now by Katie Wu, who is currently covering the Cardinals from Florida for The Athletic. Hello, Katie. Ben, Meg, hello. Happy to join you guys and a happy 2024 baseball season. Yeah, well, Cardinals fans hope it will be, which would be a change (laughs) from the 2023 season for them, which is where I was going to start. I don't want to exaggerate how earth-shaking it was that the Cardinals had a single bad season, but it did sort of seem like the earth had been knocked off its axis by a few degrees because that hadn't happened for a very long time. To what degree did Cardinals fans freak out about this? And to what degree was there internal uncertainty or questioning of the Cardinals way or whatever we want to call it was their sort of self-examination about what went wrong because obviously this is largely the same team as last year and they're banking on a bounce back so it's not as if they just totally tore up the script and rewrote it but I wonder what lessons if anything were learned or drawn by the Cardinals about the Cardinals. Sure. Well, it certainly felt like a crisis in Cardinals land. And it makes sense when you think about just how rare a losing season is in St. Louis. The Cardinals lost 91 games in 2023. It was the first time they've lost over 90 games since 1990. And it was the first losing season in president of baseball operations, John Mosellock's 17-year tenure. So, and it wasn't just that it was a losing season. It was a historically bad year. So it very much felt like uh, in the eyes of Cardinals fans, Cardinals players, Cardinals coaches, Cardinals execs, and even sometimes, you know, Cardinal media, that this was just an incredibly rare, awful season. And I think 
from an outside perspective, certainly fan bases uh, that hadn't seen the same overall success as St. Louis can scoff and roll their eyes and say, seriously, it was one year. And I hear you. (laughs) But in St. Louis, those kinds of years just do not happen. And I think it was really jarring to the organization. You look at that Cardinals front office, how long Mo, general manager Mike Gersh, and assistant general managers Randy Flores and Moises Rodriguez had been together it was the first time that that core had experienced something so earth-shattering, especially in their perspectives, in regards to just how bad the season was. So a lot of pressure, and it was known early on, you know, by early July, that this was the Cardinals were going to sell up the trade deadline and pivot to 2024, and it allowed the organization to kind of restructure in their own Cardinal way, pun intended, their roster. And when you look at it, their position playing side of the roster is almost completely the same. Mm-hmm. It's the pitching side that is a little different, and I'm sure we can get into what those differences are and if they'll actually make any change if they've done enough. But I think when you think of 2023, uh, Cardinals fans are going to remember it as one of the worst seasons in the last 50 years. I think maybe the the place that makes sense to start is on the pitching side because they weren't a great pitching team, <laughs> uh, no, certainly they were not, not <laughs> uh, and not you know not in the rotation and not really in the bullpen either. Um, you know, we can maybe talk about Wainwright's last ride as as a separate point, but you know they were a team that struck me as both not having uh, enough pitching and certainly not enough good pitching. And so they go out this this off season, and there are a lot of new names in this rotation. And I think that there's certainly just a lot more innings covered when you look at a group like Gibson, Lynn, and Sonny Gray. But apart from Sonny Gray, you know they're additions were guys who you wouldn't want taking the ball in sort of the first game of a postseason series in in Kyle Gibson and Lance Lynn. So talk to us about what their sort of philosophy was in terms of patching up that rotation in both a quantity and quality way. And if this is what you expect um, sort of the finished group to look like. In early July, John Mazalock did this premonition on what he wanted the next six months to look like from uh, an organization perspective and what they were targeting. And he said what has become an infamous quote now, pitching, pitching, pitching. And when you look at the rotation, he probably also could have said innings, 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 because the Cardinals targeted durability and innings in their starters. And the obvious rebuttal to that is, well, there's a difference between innings and innings of quality. And I think that's the biggest question looking at this Cardinals rotation for 2024 is can these five guys in Sonny Gray, Miles Michaelis, Kyle Gibson, Lance Lynn, and Steven Matz provide innings of quality? I don't really think anyone's worried about Sonny Gray. Personally, I think that was the best addition the Cardinals could have made. It was an obvious, it made obvious sense from the jump. And I just in the limited times I've seen Sonny in the one week I've been down here for spring training, he has all the makeup of an ace. And I, again, yeah. I think he complements what the Cardinals were looking for perfectly. The rest of the players and, and or pitchers and Michaelis, Gibson, and Lynn, they have the durability track records. Uh, Miles Michaelis, Lance Lynn, Kyle Gibson all made over 30 starts last year. And they can certainly take the ball every fifth day, which is what the Cardinals were lacking, especially early on in 2023. Steven Matz can be effective. It's just a matter of can he take the ball every day because he has had some sort of injury since signing with the Cardinals before the 2022 season. So that's the biggest question for the rotation. Would Cardinals fans rather have seen uh, maybe some more flashy names with more stuff than players that make up the oldest rotation in baseball? 
obviously. But I understand what the Cardinals were doing, especially seeing how hard they scrambled just to get through nine innings a day in April and May. I think it directly attributed to their snowball effect that ultimately landed them in the bottom of the NL Central in early May, and they never recovered. So when you're John Mozeliak and you're looking at making this rotation better, it started with making sure you had enough innings to get through a rotation in the first place. Now the question is going into spring, are those additions enough? They have the veteran status that they wanted in the rotation. They have the track records. They have the durability. Do they have the stuff to compete? Well, and I guess one of the questions that I have with Lynn in particular is, you know, the last time we saw this guy pitching, he was giving up four home runs in an inning to the Arizona Diamondbacks. And he gave up just a, a staggering number of long balls last year, 44. And I'm wondering what they've said about sort of how they expect him to to manage that. Obviously, he'll be pitching in a, a ballpark, at least at home, that's favorable to pitchers. But what is your sense of of their view of his sort of long ball problem? Are they just counting on regression here or do they have a fix in mind to help him keep the ball in the park? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, of course, Bush Stadium, very pitchy friendly, don't really see a lot of pitchers give up a lot of home runs there. But they also don't think Lance Lynn will have as much problem with the home run ball as he did last year. Remember, this is an organization that's obviously very familiar with Lance. They drafted him, spent a substantial part of his career there. And they are hoping for some sort of regression. But what the Cardinals at least should have learned last year is that hope isn't always a viable strategy. So I think what St. Louis is ideally expecting out of Lynn is to just go out there and get five, six innings, lead by example. They figure that their defense will be better and that the ballpark will help eliminate such a high home run rate. But really, it's it's really just a matter of hoping that these guys like Gibson and Lynn can pitch better than what they did in 2023 and really kind of help reinvent the the dynamic of the rotation because it was such a young rotation with such little experience by the end of last year that it felt like the Cardinals really needed to reinvent the the Cardinal way in, in terms of what their rotation and their starting pitching staff in general look like. Someone like Lance Lynn can really help with overall demeanor. But of course, as we saw with Adam Wainwright last year, you also have to be able to perform to really be considered a leader. And I think the Cardinals are counting on Lance to find that out. Yeah, one way that the Cardinals have succeeded, how many times can we say way during this segment, we will find out, is (laughs) pitch to contact, right? And trust the defense. And they haven't historically rated really high on stuff metrics, even in their farm system, typically. And so it did get my attention when Moselak said something to the effect of, we need some strikeouts, we need some whiffs, right? Because he attributed at least some of the defensive shortcomings last year to the shift restrictions and the fact that the Cardinals could no longer take advantage of positioning that they had done before. I don't know how convincing that is or not, but it it sounded like they were kind of getting on board with the way that other teams tend to view pitching, which is miss as many bats as possible. And then they went and got Kyle Gibson. Now, of course, (laughs) you know, Gray and, and Lynn, I mean, they will get some strikeouts. So it's not as if they went total pitch to contact. But I wonder whether that was the execution of that philosophy that he had in mind or whether they just haven't fully committed to that or whether, as you said, they're just banking on a defensive bounce back. And if they are, should they be? That's a very fair question, but I think it's a combination of all three. You look at the rotation again, and finding durability, the front office prioritized that 
over finding swing and miss. When you look at the bullpen, however, there are a bunch of versatile options with significant upside when it comes to chase rate, whiff rate, a low barrel percentage, where I think you're going to see a little bit more of swing and miss on that that side of the pitching staff other than the rotation. And in terms of figuring out the defense, I mean, it was a very uncharacteristic Cardinals year all around, but especially defensively. I mean, Nolan Arenado wasn't even a finalist for the third, for the gold glove at third base. When has that ever happened? Uh, Never in his career. So I think when you talk to people throughout the organization, they'll credit 2023 as being just the perfect storm of badness. That is an Adam Wainwright quote. And I think it's pretty much, if you could write a book about the 2023 season, what I would title it. <laughs> I Do I expect the Cardinals to be as bad as last year? No. If, if the Cardinals replayed the 2023 season, just hit rewind and start it over, I don't think they are a team that loses 91 games. Do I think they're a for sure playoff team? No. But I don't think if you replayed that season, it would go as poorly as it did. And I do think that there were things that the Cardinals needed to learn shift restriction and finding out a better strategic way to play those new rules. Keep in mind, the Cardinals were so good at playing the shift and defensive positioning. They were top in the league. And then you put that with their defense and that's why they had the reputation that they did. But you put some shift restriction there. You have some guys playing out of position. Jordan Walker is learning the outfield for the first time at the major league level. Decent strategy. Tyler O'Neill as the center fielder on opening day, even though he's a gold glove winning left fielder two times. And you have Tommy Edmund bouncing all over the place, a regression from Nolan Arenado, and you have, the again, a perfect storm of badness defensively. So when you're John Mazalock and you're looking at how do I fix this whole problem, it makes sense to kind of divide it into little areas and say, okay, let's shore up the rotation with veteran durability. Let's incorporate that swing and miss that we were lacking and we're admittedly late to the game on in our bullpen And let's get a better solidified position. Maybe we're not moving guys around as much because the Cardinals do like to do that and hope that fixing those areas singularly can lead to a better overall result. Should that perfect storm of badness strike the rotation again this year? Are there any young guys down on the farm that you anticipate we might see up in St. Louis this year to try to complement that rotation? They have a number of top 100 prospects who aren't currently on their 40-man, but who are very promising in Tinkens and Takoa Roby. Uh, Graceffo's down there, McGreevy, and then they have a, a couple of young guys who are floating around AAA on the 40-man. Do, do any of them strike you as especially strong candidates to make a cameo this year if one of the veterans goes down? I think Tink Hens and Takoa Roby are certainly really exciting prospects and a lot to be excited about in that regard, but I don't see them as necessarily the first guys up should yeah. something happen to the rotation. I think the Cardinals would go back to a Zach Thompson or a Matthew Libertor, both guys that have showed up to camp early, look really good. You know, they, The Cardinals could even maybe open up the season with a six-man rotation just because their schedule is so hectic. They have eight straight games without a day off and then just one day off within the first two weeks of the season. So those are kind of the two names that I'd be looking at if if the Cardinals... Well, it's not really a, a matter of if, but when, because no team in baseball has right. five starters that make 32 starts. You know, you have to have some sort of triple-A depth. But I do think someone like Zach Thompson or Matthew Libertor would get the first look. They've seen it before. Both guys have done both the relief role, the spot starter role. They've been up and down from AAA and the Cardinals major league roster for the last two two years. And um, this seems like the prove it year for both of these players. Um, should they get the chance to, those are the two guys I'm looking at in, as terms of starting rotation depth rather than the prospects like Tank Hens, Jaco Roby or Gordon Graceffo. 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that depth is tested because that's what would worry me. I think about this blueprint of dependability and innings eating, pairing that with the age of this rotation, which you mentioned already. I mean, when the youngest guy who's expected to be in the top five is turning 33 in May, I don't know that that will go as catastrophically wrong as it did for the Mets last season, say, where (laughs) it seemed like they had a really talented rotation, but also super old. And then it just kind of fell apart. It's just it's hard to have great reliability and durability and then also great age, even if you have the pitchers who have that track record. So I think that's what would concern me. But it is good that there are some reinforcements that they could call on. Now that we have some distance from it, can we just analyze what happened with that Wilson Contreras situation? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> your reporting on it was was really revealing and we talked a lot about it at the time. It just was so wild to watch from afar. And I felt for Contreras, it certainly seemed to me at the time, just reading about it, that he was sort of being scapegoated or that maybe it was just an extreme Molina withdrawal, right? Just like (laughs) a shock to the system, having any other kind of catcher, right? So is there any lingering bitterness about that? Is everything patched up and okay? How would you diagnose what went wrong there? Let me say that when the Wilson Contreras fiasco went down, it was to me clear as day that the Cardinals would not be a winning team. And this was in early May because Mm -hmm. it was just a complete meltdown throughout the organization. It was so unlike the Cardinals to have a debacle like this in which they just jumbled up the messaging. They didn't have, I think if you asked anyone in the organization who had a say in that process, if they would do it differently, they would say yes in a heartbeat. But to witness that go down and, and real time and just the overall organization in disarray, it was clear to me that this was a, a, a team that was panicking, that didn't, that was losing and didn't know what to do. And the timing of Wilson losing his starting catching abilities coming right before the Cardinals went to Wrigley Field for the first time wasn't even something that they had considered or put together until it was too late. And I thought that said all you needed to know about how that decision went down. I'll give Wilson endless credit for how he handled it, how he spoke to the media, how he handled with his teammates, with his pitching staff. And remember, he's not 100% innocent, but I don't want to say that his lack of framing or lack of preparedness was intentional. He was just coming from an entirely different organization. And the St. Louis Cardinals had two decades of Yadier Molina. And I don't think either side realized how much an adjustment they needed to make until it was a little too late. Now, keep in mind, the Cardinals had 17 players, a majority of them pitchers, go to the World Baseball Classic last year while Wilson stayed. So when those pitchers came back, and you know, I'm a big supporter of the WBC, I'm in no way saying these pitchers shouldn't have gone and represented their countries. But when they came back, they had missed four weeks of valuable time getting to know their catcher and different levels of preparedness. And it showed early on, it just seemed like there was a lack of trust, a lot of second guessing. And do I think that only Marmel and John Mazelak made the right call in saying something needs to change here before damages can't be repaired? Yes. Do I think it could have been handled a lot better than what they actually ended up doing from a public perception? Absolutely. The good news is coming into Cardinals camp this year, Contreras definitely has shed that like freshman on campus mentality. This is his second year. He has a backup in Ivan Herrera, who is all but surely going to be the reserve catcher this year. And he's getting 
a brand new pitching staff for the second year in a row, but he's been through this before and he knows what the Cardinals expect out of him. And he knows how he had to change his preparedness levels and get a little bit better defensively fundamentally. Look, the Cardinals knew they were getting an offense first catcher in Wilson Contreras. If they didn't know that, I didn't, I'm not sure what they were expecting. Now, could it be better defensively? Absolutely. But you got a bat first catcher for a reason. And I thought Wilson did everything that he was asked for offensively. The fact that he's come to spring with a different mindset, he's working extensively with the pitchers that are already in camp and essentially having to learn a new pitching staff. Again, you know, you can get some apprehension about that, but I think the organization feels a lot more confident because both sides understand each other a little bit better now. I am curious sort of how how you perceive Marmel's position to be, because I think that, you know, when it was announced that Yadier Molina was going to stay with the organization as a special assistant, uh, and have some impact on the big league club, but, you know, the, an eyebrow might have gone up. It might have um, sparked some interest about whether he was being positioned as sort of a backup to Marmol should things not improve and, and they need to make a change at manager. So what is the, the current dynamic like there? That's a good question, as um, it's a little bit unsure of when Yadier Molina is going to show up to camp. He had a pretty extensively long winter ball season, so I think he's taking right. a couple weeks to reset. I would expect him, if I had to guess, to be here around the first week of March, but we'll see. It's a fluid situation, and Mo said as much when he announced the hiring at the winter meetings that this is not something where Yadier's going to have a defined role. It's when he shows up, he can help when he can. Um, he wants to learn a bit from the major league staff because he has made clear aspirations that he wants to be a major league manager one day. But this isn't like, hey, Yachty, show up from nine to five every day where you have a set, a set schedule. It's more or less like when franchise icons, people like Ozzie Smith, Jason Isringhausen come in and spend a week or two at camp. That to me is what I imagine Yachty doing when he gets here. But Ollie Marmel is in a, a difficult situation because yeah. it's pretty much win the season or lose your job for, yeah. for Ollie here. And I think Mo is pretty high on Ollie. You know, he had a fantastic 2022 and a pretty poor 2023 in terms of record standpoint. So I don't think the Cardinals necessarily want to make a managerial change, but they'll need to see some sort of buy-in from the clubhouse. I think that's what kind of saved the entire coaching staff last year is that none of the players turned on the coaches. In fact, three of them, and arguably the three biggest names that you could have in Nolan Arenado, Paul Goldschmidt, and Adam Wainwright came to defend not just Ollie, but their hitting coach and Turner Ward, their pitching coach and Dusty Blake, both guys that were brand new to that spot in 2023. And as long as the clubhouse has that same buy-in and the Cardinals can get off to a good start, I don't think there's too much to worry about early on. Now, if I'm Ollie and all of a sudden the Cardinals are, you know, five and 15 to start the year and you're seeing some clubhouse turmoil, then you're starting to sweat. But I think John Mozeliak is going to give Ollie a significant amount of, of leash here to start the season because the last thing they want to do is make an abrupt change when they're trying so hard to preach stability and forget about last year. And if the truly inconceivable did happen and the Cardinals had consecutive bad years, would the front office also be in any sort of jeopardy or would probably the manager, the coaches be the first thrown to the wolves? I, I ask because Heim Bloom came in as an advisor, right? And similarly, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. There are often people who are between gigs maybe or they were a GM or a chief baseball officer or whatever and lose that position and then they go and uh, stay in the game somewhere else for some other organization for a while. It certainly doesn't 
doesn't mean that they're waiting in the wings or anything, but I just wonder whether there would be any heat on the front office also in that event. I think it would take a catastrophic event for the Bill DeWitt and the DeWitt ownership uh, family to really have any kind of force on John Mozeliak's tenure here. Moe's under contract his final year is 2025. He said before that he intends to step back a little bit after 2025. And those two, in terms of Bill DeWitt Jr. and John Mozeliak, have been together for 25 years. They have such a strong relationship. It would be very jarring for me to see Mo get ousted at this point of his career. At the same time, the Cardinals don't exactly do back-to-back losing seasons. It's something that is very much not uh, in their playbook. So something, I, I guess you could counter uh, two losing seasons as catastrophic in St. Louis. And I know, you know, there's A's fans probably listening that are like, are you kidding me? <laughs> or Royals fans are like, okay, Cardinals are super annoying. I get it. Um, but it's just kind of a different way of life here in St. Louis, especially in this organization and how, how they're run. I would Imagine Ollie faces significant more pressure early on to win than Mo does. But, you know, come July, if the Cardinals are struggling again and looking at a, a rebuild, a potential rebuild, which is an unfathomable concept in St. Louis, then I think you might maybe see some changes in the front office. You mentioned Jordan Walker having to learn the outfield on the fly at the major league level. And uh, I don't want to harp too much on how bad the defense was, because I think anyone who watched the Cardinals last year's know, but it, it was... <laughs> It was quite bad. You know, the bat certainly kind of started hot and then turned around. But what what has been their approach in helping him sort of get his feet under him in the outfield? Because the arm is certainly strong enough for him to be out there. But I imagine that if he puts up, you know, half a season looking like he did last year, that they're going to have to reconsider him and his future out there at the very least. So where where do things stand with Jordan Walker? Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I think Jordan was put into a really tough position early yeah. on. Um, I mean, the Cardinals knew when they traded for Nolan Arenado in 2021, that third base would be more or less locked up unless Nolan did the unthinkable and opted out. But in 2022, when he said, I'm here for the long haul, the Cardinals still put Jordan Walker at third base. And it wasn't until two months left of the 2022 minor league season that they started transitioning him to the outfield. So I tend to look at Jordan Walker's progression in the outfield last year from a first half very, very bad, to the second half, getting better. Still below league average, but getting yeah. better. And and to combat that, to, to kind of advance Jordan's progress in the outfield, the he actually spent the offseason here in Jupiter and worked every day with minor league coordinator Jose Okendo, who is really respected throughout the organization um, in terms of just trying to go out there and make Jordan a little bit better. So Jordan would work three to four days or three to four hours a day in the mornings at this Cardinals complex, just doing routes, readings, uh, reads off the bat, footwork, trying to do anything he can because he's athletic enough, obviously. He has right. the build. He's massive. He has the arm, like you mentioned. It's just, can he, does he have that innate first read step? The Cardinals don't need him to be a top tier five-star right fielder. They need him to be league average. And then you have someone like Tommy Edmond, who I think could develop into one of the game's best center fielders to kind of compensate there. But if you have a Jordan Walker that can play league average defense, I think you take that and hope the rest of your overall defensive outlook can overmatch that. But if he comes out there and there hasn't really been any progress, then I think they're rethinking, okay, where can we put Jordan Walker? How could this affect the potential extension with Paul Goldschmidt? You know, can we put him at first base? 
can't really put him at third because Nolan's still there. Then they have a problem, which is why I think they are so gung-ho about trying to make right field work. Jordan's young enough. He's athletic enough. It's just more or less, can he make that adjustment in a year where the Cardinals really need him to because the Cardinals can't afford to lose in 2024? Nolan Gorman seems like another player who could take a step forward if he could stay healthy because he crushes the ball and he's looked really great at times. He's also had some recurring back issues, hamstring issues. So what is the outlook for him, I guess, health-wise and overall? They love them some Nolan Gorman and understandably so when you see how young he is and that true power from the left-handed side. The only thing that concerns me with Nolan is that back problems don't usually tend to get better with age and he's so young. So to have that reoccurring issue that more or less affected his availability last year, I think that hinders his overall ceiling. However, if Nolan can come out and have a breakout year and figure out a way to stay on the field, then I think he's their everyday second baseman just because he simply mashes the ball. I'm I'm high on Gorman. I think the organization is also high on Gorman. And they're also lucky because if they need to give him a spell, they have Brendan Donovan who can come in and play a serviceable second base. They can utilize their DH where Gorman can just have a half day. Necess- you know, he doesn't have to necessarily play the field every day. But in an ideal world, Nolan Gorman is in that starting lineup almost every single day just for the pure left-handed power. St. Louis has a ton of left-handed hitters on their projected active roster this year, but I think uh, no hitter is maybe as alluring or as exciting as Nolan Gorman could be this year. Probably would have been impossible for Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado to match their 2022 seasons. They were just so spectacular. Goldschmidt obviously won the NL MVP award. Arenado was terrific, but they had down years and, you know, they weren't awful, but it was certainly a a significant drop from what they had achieved the year prior. So what do you, apart from the, the sort of perfect storm of badness, right? What do we attribute that to and sort of what might we expect from them this year? They both project reasonably well, but they are getting up there in age. So what are your expectations for those two guys? I am taking the over on both of the projections for Goldschmidt and Arnado just because of how unhappy they were. Nolan specifically, he's been a little bit more vocal than Paul on, on just how disappointed he was about his 2023 season. And for Goldschmidt, it was kind of a lack of slugging percentage, which was not something I saw coming. I mean, you're going to see regression almost any time a player wins the MVP award. Very hard to duplicate. I didn't necessarily expect to see the slugging percentage regression as much as I did with Goldschmidt. And Nolan, I think you saw regression across the board. And, you know, talking to him today at Cardinals camp, he comes in and he says, you know, I think I have something to prove this year. And I think that's a good thing. Lars Newbar delivered an early quote that sums up what I think will be Nolan Arenado's maybe mantra for the year. And a motivated Nolan is a scary Nolan. And I think that also applies to Paul Goldschmidt. So I'm going to take the over on both. I under understanding that they're both getting older. Um, and I just think it's so funny, you know, Arenado's about to be 33, which is not old at all, but in baseball terms, it's like, oh my gosh, he's the oldest man alive. Yeah. But I do, I do understand that sentiment. But I think if you can get Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arnado to find, you know, asking them to repeat what they did in 2022 may not be fair, but if they can get somewhere close to that, this team immediately is is so much better, especially when you're looking at, again, Gorman, Contreras coming back and being consistent, Lars Newbar being able to stay on the field. You're feeling a lot better about that lineup. And that's part of the reason why the Cardinals didn't really do much to boost it, except for the addition of adding Matt Carpenter for morale reasons, is because Mm -hmm. they believe in a big bounce back year from Goldschmidt and Arnauto both. 
Yeah, as other people have pointed out, Goldschmidt had exactly the same expected weighted on base average in 2022 and 2023, but the actual weighted on base average yeah. fluctuated by 70 yes. points, yeah. <laughs> just about. <laughs> so maybe he was a little fortunate in 22 and a little unfortunate in 23, and hopefully it settles in somewhere in the middle. Since you mentioned Carpenter, I mean, fewer familiar faces around, at least in uniform on the field. And so I was going to ask who is sort of the leader in the clubhouse now. I mean, maybe it's just Goldschmidt, but he's kind of a quiet guy, right? And he hasn't been with the Cardinals as long as that trio that is is now departed. So is Carpenter's return? I mean, is that like a, a link to an earlier Cardinals era? Is he just sort of like a warm, fuzzy feelings carps back? Or are they actually expecting him to be productive again? Well, the Cardinals organization loves Matt Carpenter and Matt Carpenter loves the Cardinals organization. So it wasn't necessarily surprising to me after the initial shock, because I didn't see it coming, full disclosure, <laughs> that he came back because of what the Cardinals were looking for from a leadership standpoint. Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arnato had to do a lot of leading last year because they had such a, in their eyes, young clubhouse. Now, when you look at their overall ages, you're looking and you're like, okay, they're, they're actually not that young, but they're young in terms of experience. And asking Goldschmidt and Arnato to lead while they're also struggling, same with Adam Wainwright, who was struggling more than he had his entire career, there just wasn't a lot of, of buy-in, I think, from those three in their abilities to lead. Not necessarily the young guys. I think the young guys are pretty receptive to anyone that will talk to them. But one of the big things that Nolan really stressed over the offseason was there needed to be more of a veteran presence there. It, they needed it in the rotation. They got it. We talked about it with Gibson and Lynn. And they needed it from a position play inside. And Matt Carpenter fits that mold because with rosters having now expanded to 26 men, he's not necessarily taking a spot away from any of these young players projected to maybe make the roster or not. You can still keep someone like an Alec Burleson or a Dylan Carlson on the roster and also have room for Matt Carpenter. He is, by all definitions, the 26th man. They didn't bring Carpenter back to sell tickets or, you know, oh, here's a familiar face. This is great. Carp's back. What a great story, though he is a fan favorite. They brought him back because the veterans on the team wanted more guys like them to come in and lead and kind of set the tone of what to expect in the clubhouse. And Personally, I think Matt Carpenter is a great fit for that because he's not afraid to talk to guys and have conversations. But more importantly, he knows how to have those conversations. Some guys aren't natural leaders. Carpenter is. And when you think about what he's done in this organization and you have guys like Nolan Gorman, Brendan Donovan, uh, prospect Thomas Segesi, looking to be kind of the next wave of talent, they're going to flock to Carp and they're going to talk and he's going to set the tone and he's going to do it in a way that helps make it a lot easier so guys like Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado can go out and focus on playing the field every day. That was more or less why they brought Carpenter in. You know, he'll, he'll play. Don't get me wrong. It's not like he's going to not see the field for 30 straight games, but he'll be a limited role. It's a bench role. And that's something that he embraced because he wanted to be that veteran mentor presence. And that's just as important. And it's, you know, it's not just about can you lead, it's do you want to. And Carp really wanted to do that. Mason Wynn has not yet turned 22. Obviously, he throws really hard. We all know that. He might be one of the hardest throwers on the Cardinals at any position, including the pitchers. But <laughs> offensively, things didn't go great in his first taste of the majors. So do they think he will hit the ground running and make major strides at the plate this year? They're going to give Mason Wynn as much leeway as possible to win the starting shortstop job outright. In an ideal world, 
Come opening day, March 28th against the Dodgers. Tough draw. <laughs> Mason Wynn plays shortstop. Tommy Edmond is the opening day center fielder. And then Dylan Carlson starts the year as the reserve outfielder. Now, two things have to go right for that to happen. One, Tommy Edmond has to recover from his wrist surgery that he had in October. He's a little bit delayed in spring training, but so far doesn't seem like there's going to be a big significant setback or anything like that. The second thing is that Mason Wynn has to hit. And if there's a silver lining to just how awful the 2023 season was last year, it's that when Mason got called up in the middle of August, he had 50 games to go out there and just get accustomed to the big leagues. He didn't have to worry about getting up there and performing. Certainly he wanted to, don't get me wrong, but the Cardinals were so far out of it. If he went 0 for 4 in the middle of September, was it really going to impact anything? No. So he was able to get his feet wet, get comfortable. And now coming into spring, you can already see there's some confidence there that he wouldn't have had if he didn't have that opportunity last year. He's always started slow uh, when it comes to promotions. You look at what he did, making the jump from single A to double A to triple A, and he's always had a little bit of a slow start. I think Mason's very confident in his ability to start strong this spring. He'll consider his six weeks in the big leagues last year as his slow start to his promotion. But if he can hit, and he doesn't need to hit for power, if he can hit for consistency and play that elite defense that the Cardinals know that he can at shortstop, then he's going to take that job out, right? It's just a matter of what does the consistency look like? What does the swing look like? The batted ball profile, you know, spring training numbers are just that. But for Mason's case, the metrics are really going to tell a story there. I wanted to ask about Edmund because, you know, he's another one of these guys who had a down year relative to what he's been able to do in the past. I know that the wrist injury probably accounted for a good portion of that. But I'm curious, just, you know, as you can sort of step back and look at his career over the last couple of years, what what your opinion of him as like a, a true talent player is, because he can obviously be a defensive standout. Sometimes that doesn't go quite as well. He has this versatility where he can play multiple positions. He's going to be asked to play center field. The bat kind of comes and goes. So what is the true talent of Tommy Edmond and what are your expectations of him this year? I think Tommy Edmond's best attribute, and I, I believe the organization thinks this as well, is his durability. It's his versatility. The fact that he's on the field every single day, dude does not take a day off. We used to joke around, Ollie would say before games, yeah, you know, Tommy Edmund not in the lineup today. We're giving him a day off his feet. He's earned it. And then bottom of the seventh, who's on the on-deck circle? Oh, it's number 19, Tommy Edmund. So the fact that he can go out there and play every single day is his best quality. The fact that he can go out there every year and have a new position and still be above average, if not great at that position, is even more impressive. You don't need Tommy Edmund to hit for power when you look at the names that we already mentioned in the lineup. Sure. He can get on base. He can work a walk. He's fast. So, you know, you can hammer a double or you can single and still second. Same result. So they're not necessarily worried about the overall power numbers. They would like to see Tommy be able to get on base and run more, steal some more bases. I think the Cardinals kind of got away from their run game over the last two years. And that used to be a defining trait for the club. But what Tommy Evan brings, and I think he's one of the more underrated players on this team still, is his ability to go out there and play whatever position they need him to. They just threw him out there in center field in the middle of the 2020 season. Like, get out there. Good luck. And he thrived. And the fact that he can play anywhere they need him to, and he does so without question. So I think a lot of the Cardinals' early season questions in spring will be about Tommy Edmonds' presumed health as he works back from that wrist surgery. He's on a throwing program. He's on a hitting program. But he didn't use that wrist for a considerable amount of time, given the fact that he was recovering from surgery. So the ramp-up period is going to be slow. 
I'm not sure I'm as confident about this Cardinals team if they're without Tommy Edmond for, let's say, the first month to open the season. And, you know, I'm not saying that's at all the case, just hypothetically speaking, because he plays such an invaluable role to their overall roster construction and his versatility allows other players to be kind of set in stone and where they play so that they can be at their best position. Because I don't know if Tommy has a best position. He's just simply good wherever they put him. It did seem at times like the Cardinals just had too many players, right? Too many players who should have been playing every day or would have been playing every day somewhere else. And I don't know whether that affected anyone's performance or confidence or development, but I guess shipping out Tyler O'Neill, who also contributed to some drama with Ali Marmol, that lightens that problem perhaps is Dylan Carlson the new Tyler O'Neill in that respect in the sense that does he have a position is he ever going to be the guy that he was a couple of years ago again do you think that they will find ways to use him and just overall do you think there will be more kind of positional consistency or or less of a logjam generally on the roster I do think the Cardinals and Ollie Marmel in particular will make it a point to see more lineup consistency. This doesn't mean Dylan Carlson's never going to play, especially if Tommy Edmond isn't 100%. Dylan is who they prefer to be their backup center fielder. They like Lars Mubar in left. They think that's his best position. Can he play center field in the pinch? Sure, but Carlson is all around, I think, the much better defensive option there. Carlson can also be in control of his own destiny if he comes out this spring and hits. It's just a matter of consistency for him. He was a top-rated prospect for a reason, but in 2023, he just wasn't able to take the field a lot. He had some sort of a freak injury in Boston on Mother's Day where these specialty cleats he was wearing got stuck in the dirt and twisted his ankle, and he sprained it, and he was just never the same all season. He actually ended up having surgery on that ankle and ended his year a couple months later. So if Dylan Carlson can come to spring and be healthy and hit consistently, then all of a sudden you have a little bit more competition. You're feeling a little bit better if Tommy Edmond is is slightly delayed. And there's not as much pressure on Mason Wynn to figure it out and perform at shortstop. They're kind of all connected. But Carlson certainly, while they're planning for him to be the reserve outfielder, can certainly change that narrative if he's able to stay healthy and hit consistently. He has power. You know, he's a switch hitter. It's more or less finding the same level of production from both sides. But I really think that if you're Dylan Carlson coming into this year, you're mad about how the season went. You have something to prove. And if he can do that, then I think you might see the Cardinals get a little bit more cute with how they put their outfield out there. Uh, Other than that, though, I would expect the infield to more or less stay the same. And the only rotation changes or changes that you could see to the roster would be rotating players out on who would DH. But you'd probably see the same nine names every day. Jordan Walker, starting center fielder. Oh, gosh. Yes. (laughs) Well, we didn't talk much about the bullpen, although it it is a top 10 projected unit. If you think there's anything we need to know or Cardinals fans need to know about the bullpen, you can mention that. But I am ready to tee you up for the final question as well, which is what would constitute success for this team for the season? And I guess... One thing would be just not having another perfect storm of horribleness and just kind of making 2023 look like a total fluke and blip in retrospect. But is there anything else that the Cardinals or their fans should have as sort of a a baseline to judge this season by? Well, I, I will touch on the bullpen very briefly, just because I think it's a rather underrated version of this roster. Mm -hmm. There's five pitchers that you can probably slot in to be there. And Ryan Helsley, Giovanni Gallegos, Andrew Kittredge, Keenan Middleton, and Jojo Romero. 
And then I think there'll be like most bullpens, a rotating cast of characters for those final three spots throughout the the year. I wasn't sure if I'd be super high on the bullpen in December when they hadn't made any changes. Um, but coming and seeing these relievers in spring, I do think that this Cardinals bullpen can be a little bit underrated. And I think they have the potential to be a top 10 bullpen. Absolutely. Um, but I think no matter what, whether we're talking about the rotation, the lineup, the bullpen, the coaching staff, the front office, what will constitute a successful season in 2024 is getting back to the playoffs. If the Cardinals miss the playoffs two years in a row, you know, even if it's by one or two games, I just think it will be unfathomable to the fans. They haven't, Cardinals haven't won a postseason series since 2019, despite making the postseason in 2020, 21, and 22. So making the playoffs and winning a series would be the definition of success. Um, there's going to be the fans that say it's a World Series or bust. This is St. Louis. And I hear you. I get it. I mean, I don't think any team is going to go out there and willing to say, oh, we made the wild card series and won two games. So it was a good year. Um, but for the Cardinals, given just how bad 2023 was, how much work is ahead of them, and how direly they need to right the ship, both from internal pressures and external pressures, I think they really need to go out there and find a way to get into the playoffs and win at least one series. Otherwise, you might be looking at a potential inflection point for the state of the organization. All right. Well, I encourage everyone to read Katie's coverage at The Athletic. She's going to have another good year, regardless of how things go for <laughs> the <hope> Cardinals. So. <laughs> and I guess, I don't know if I, I hope that there's uh, less drama, less uproar for you to cover. I mean, it's nice to have uh, content and material, <laughs> right? And right. You did, Careful did what you wish through. for is yeah, what, I, I know. what I learned. <laughs> right. Well, it's uh, interesting times, I guess, one way or another. So thank you, as always, Katie. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Thanks so much. All right, let's take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Mandy Bell of MLB.com to talk about the Cleveland Guardians. How can you not be pedantic? A stat blast will keep you distracted. It's a long slog to death, but the sure to make you smile. This is effective. This is All right, we are back, and so is Mandy Bell, who covers the Cleveland Guardians for MLB.com and is here to help us preview the team's season. Hello, Mandy. Hey, how are you? We're doing okay. So stop us if you've heard this before, but it was kind of a quiet winter for Cleveland when it comes to (laughs) transactions. We will get to that, but because it was a quiet winter... Those questions will be eclipsed by my eclipse question. That is where I'm (laughs) going to start because I'm sort of sad. I'm sort of disappointed. I was looking forward to the home opener being paused to allow for the eclipse to happen and then resumed because in 2017, I attended a minor league game during a total eclipse and the game paused and we watched the eclipse and then it started again and that was kind of cool. I was looking forward to possibly seeing that here that's not going to happen now. The game is going to start after the eclipse. So how is it decided that that would happen and what sort of uh, events will take place around this? I'm not really sure of all the inner workings that they have to go through in order to determine the, the first pitch time. I know they've been working really closely with the city of Cleveland of figuring out exactly all the legal issues behind it and how they can go about making sure that this is safe for everybody and also promoting it at the same time. There's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through. I have no idea if there's a safety concern about it being 
during the game. I know there's there's been eclipses in the past, and so I'm sure that there's been plenty of things that have gone on and continued outdoors. Um, so I, I really don't know. I'm not sure exactly how they had to come up with it. So um, it looks like they landed on a middle ground of having gates open at two o'clock so that whenever, I believe, if you look through all of NASA's research on how this is going to play out, they have the uh, partial eclipse beginning at 1.59 in the afternoon. So gates will open right as this is starting to take effect. And it should be done around 4.30 with the total darkness being from like 3.13 to 3.17. This is all pinpointed down to the, the minute, the second. So I think the players are supposed to be off of the fields during this time, like all pregame. It's going to be a little bit different, but... I think the the Guardians are trying to figure out still now of how they're going to promote this event and uh, at the same time making sure that it's it's checking all the legal boxes that it needs to with the city. So I don't even know if they're for sure exactly yet how this is all going to play out and they're still working through all of it. But my guess is they'll have something to be able to enjoy the festivities, promote the festivities, but they haven't quite nailed it all down yet. Ben mentioned that the Guardians have been quiet from a, a roster addition perspective, but one important addition they made to the organization was bringing Stephen Vote in as their new manager, sort of a end of an era in Cleveland. And Vote has prior coaching experience. He coached uh, with Seattle in 2013, but uh, hasn't been a manager before. And so I'm curious what about him sort of made them confident that he's their guy and what has your sort of sense of him been so far? It seems like a personality type that's like the life of the party. He can talk to anyone or anything. Um, and I think they really were drawn to that. The fact that he's so young, he just finished his career in 2022, allows him to relate to players on a different type of level than what they've seen over the last decade with Tito, who obviously is older. And so you have this this complete 180 and you have a guy who's just beginning his managerial career He's just finishing up his time as a player, but he thinks because of his experience of going from a guy who's been cut to a guy who's been an all-star to has seen all the successes and all the hiccups that you can get in the majors, he feels like he can relate to everybody, mix that with his personality type, and it just seems like it's something that could be very successful for Cleveland, especially a team that's going to be so young again this year. It's hard to believe that three years in a row you can be sitting here saying they're the youngest team in baseball, but they might be again this year. And so I think that they thought he was a really good fit, and they wanted somebody who could bring a different type of perspective, but can also challenge them and understand how to buy in with what the organization has already done, but then also do things differently. So it just seems like he checked all of their boxes and his personality type really seems like he could be somebody who makes a really strong impact from the get-go with this organization. Yeah, and as I know you know, Sarah Lang's determined that this is the <laughs> fastest transition from player to manager since Larry Boa in 1987. So who will be around to help him learn on the job? Because no matter how good he is, uh, there's no substitute for experience, right? And it's quite a difference in experience to go from Tito to Stephen Vogt. 
I think a big help is going to be having the same pitching coach that has been so successful for them. Carl Willis, he's been around this game forever, it seems like at this point. And so to have that experience and to have one of the areas of your roster that's always your biggest strength, um, you have that coach, that consistency there. I think that's tremendous for them. So to be able to lean on that with the pitching staff and to be able to have Carl Willis still here, I think that will be helpful, not just for just the players, but I think Steven will be able to lean on him a little bit, especially through spring training as he's trying to figure all of this out. Cleveland trailed the majors in home runs last year, and by a 30-home run margin, you almost think that they would have enjoyed having Nolan Jones around. What's going on here? And does the organization see their lack of thump as a problem? How are they trying to address that? Because they are young. They have a lot of guys who have speed as a big part of their profile, but sometimes you need a guy to just be able to send the ball over the fence. So do you anticipate their power outage continuing this year? Oh, such a difficult question because yes, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do because they, you look at their off season, it was a quiet off season. They didn't address this problem. So yes, I, this is going to be a difficult area for them once again, but they are hopeful that someone like Kyle Manzardo, who they traded Aaron Savali for at the trade deadline last year, will be someone who can transition into being an excellent hitter. He's known to be a hitter over a power hitter. But I think having him be there as an all-around guy who can just make contact but then can also send the ball over the fence, as he showed in the fall league uh, this offseason, he really is developing his power tools. So I think that they're hopeful that he can make some difference in the middle of this order. But we don't even know if he's going to make the opening day roster. This thing, this is right. really getting overcrowded now on their roster because they selected a first slash third baseman in De Los Santos. They have a rule five draft pick and they have this guy, Davison De Los Santos, who is this raw power hitter, the opposite of everybody who they have in their team, their organization, finally someone who has the power, but he's 20 and he's never been above double A. And trying to figure out how you're going to be able to develop that at the big league level now that you have to keep him on your roster because he was the Rule 5 pick. I don't know how you carry him and Manzardo, and you can't expect a 20-year-old to be able to be some sort of answer for you now. Maybe in a couple years he could be great. So I don't know. I, I think they might be able to get some boost depending on which young guys they end up going with. But it's really hard to put... All, all of your eggs in the young players panning out basket for immediate results. And so I do think it's going to be a problem for them again. Who of the returning staples of the lineup do you see as maybe the best hope to offer more offense than he did last year? Is there an Andre Jimenez bounce back in the offing here? Is there someone else who seems like maybe they could make a major step forward? I think Jimenez is definitely the guy. I, I don't I don't think he's necessarily the guy that he was two years ago, how on fire he was. I definitely don't think he was the hitter he was last year either. I think there's something in the middle, and I think it's even probably more towards what he was two years ago than what it was last year. He really is an all-around solid player. We obviously see it with the defense as he's a platinum glove, but Hitting-wise, I think he's much better than what he was last year. He started to show it at the end of the season. I believe everyone starts to run together now. But I believe if you look at his numbers that were for that last month, it was really way more reflective of what we had been become used to the year prior of what he was. So I do think that he's somebody that could bring more to the table this year. 
Sharon can help out a little bit more with like Jose Ramirez and Josh Naylor, who had a standout year last year. I think Jimenez can pair much better with them this year if things start to go back in his direction like they did in 2022 um, than maybe than what he did last year. One of those young guys and a guy who could theoretically contribute some power of his own, I'm just going to stay on this theme for the duration of the interview, <laughs> is Bo Naylor, who uh, is their standout young catcher. He had a, a good uh, season last year, 124 WRC+. plus. He's you know an adept defender. So what have you seen from Naylor as he's sort of grown into uh, the starting role, and what do you expect from him this year? I think that this, it should be better going into his first full season, not having to worry about coming up to the majors, not having to worry about proving you belong. Now he knows that he's here and he knows that this is his job. They've made it very clear from the get go since they got Austin Hedges back into this organization. Hedges knows his role is to help Bo develop. Bo's the guy. So I think that has to bring some just confidence to him maybe that if even if he didn't have it last year just knowing that this is his job and he can settle in and figure it out now but having to balance learning how to be at the big league level as a catcher is so difficult because you're learning a new pitching staff you're doing all the defensive prep but then you also have to go up there and try to figure out how to hit big league pitchers for the first time too so I think it took him some time to make that adjustment of doing all of that and you started to see by the end of the season that he really was starting to come into that hitter that we had seen the year prior in the minor leagues and it just seemed like he was really starting to feel like himself at the plate so if he's able to take that and whatever work he was able to put in over the offseason and carry that into the start of this year I definitely think you'll see maybe some more confidence in him of who he is as a hitter at the plate and hopefully that then for him can translate into more success than what he saw as soon as he started up in in the big leagues last summer. Now, this wasn't the strongest free agent class, of course, but there certainly are some positions where you could have projected a free agent, maybe even a free agent who's still available to be an improvement on who the Guardians had in-house. Was there even a serious attempt to go after anyone that you know of? Was there any discussion of that? Have fans resigned themselves to that just not happening? Forget (laughs) it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Forget it, Jake. It's the Jake. It's the Guardians, their third lowest payroll now, just above the A's and the Pirates. So sort of same old, same old. And it can get frustrating because often they do have a pretty good core that if supplemented, if surrounded by some imports, they would be more productive. Yeah, um, I, I'm I'm guessing fans weren't expecting to too much. I think the, the idea going into the offseason was one, everyone knew that the TV deal was going to be a question mark. And just because no one knew what was going to pan out with Bally's and all the bankruptcy things that they had to go through and figure out how they were going to be able to get a contract for this upcoming year. That alone made it very clear that there probably wasn't going to be crazy spending. Not that there's ever really crazy spending coming out of (laughs) Cleveland, but uh, just in that regard of, okay, this might not, there not, there might not be much action at all. And so they did get creative. You saw them let go of Cal Quantrill to be able to bring in someone uh, like Scott Barlow into this mix. So they were creative in how they sort of exchanged money, it seemed like, because they were both projected to make basically the same in arbitration anyway. So they flip-flopped those guys, and they were trying to figure out ways to take from their areas of strength. They were able to get rid of Cody Morris 
who would have provided them some more starting pitching depth if they would have hung on to him, but they got Esteban Florial for him um, to add to that outfield mix that has been struggling offensively. So they tried to do it in a, a very Cleveland way, but free agency? No, I don't think that was really on the table, especially after they took some swings and misses last year. You think of Josh Bell, you think of Mike Zunino, and and it just didn't work. So it, it's not surprising that they didn't really tackle that market again. Well, the pitching is usually a little sunnier outlook. <laughs> that is uh, not an eclipse pun or anything. It's uh, <laughs> just that the Guardians usually pretty good at developing pitching. Now, last year, there were some challenges. There were some injuries. So we didn't see as much Tristan McKenzie, et cetera, as you would have liked to see. Of course, they were able to bring up some pitchers and incorporate them into the rotation. So walk us through this top five here, expectations for Shane Bieber and his contract situation, McKenzie's health, the young guy's progress, uh, just Take us on a tour of this rotation, please. Yeah, I'll start with the biggest headache one, like Bieber having to figure out all the things that could happen with him this year. I mean, I know that he really was embracing the idea that he probably should welcome some change over the offseason. He worked a lot at driveline to try to work up his numbers. We've seen his velocity dip over the last few years. It just wasn't quite the same. Uh, we've seen the strikeout numbers dip, the chase rate dip, all of that goes down. So he was trying to figure out what the reasoning was there because he even said, like, I felt like I had more in the tank and just something wasn't clicking right internally. So he was really pleased with the work that he did there. He thought his routine over this win winter was excellent. So he is expecting himself to be able to, to see better results than what he has in the, in the, like, the last couple years since he won that Cy Young Award in 2020. Finally get things trending back up in the right direction. But then if he has a strong first half... I wouldn't be surprised if the Guardians are really actively shopping him at the deadline so that he doesn't just walk into free agency because guys of his caliber, they very, very rarely just let them walk. And yes, there's an option to do the qualifying offer and you can figure out draft picks with that. But I, I just, it would be hard to imagine seeing that happen in Cleveland rather than just trying to capitalize on sending him somewhere at the deadline, assuming he's healthy, assuming he has a strong enough first half that contending teams would be willing to have a rental. And so maybe that's the discussion this year. But at least for the first half, he'll be back to provide some veteran leadership for this younger rotation. Tristan McKenzie will do the same. Um, it's hard to think of him as a veteran at this point, just because it yeah. just seems like he's still so young, but he yeah. is. As long as he's able to stay healthy, that's always going to be the biggest thing for him. I know last year was so frustrating for him, but he's so even keeled that he's able to figure out how to best benefit from that. And it seems like he learned a lot from this whole year off almost. It seemed like it was like four or five starts that he ended up getting. So it, it was frustrating for him. But as long as he can stay healthy, he's proven in the past that he has great swing and miss stuff. And he can be a weapon for them in this rotation and can help lead these three younger guys that they have, Bybee, Gavin Williams, or I should say both names, Tanner Bybee, Gavin Williams, and Logan Allen. The three of them will be coming back, having some more experience. I think all three of them having experience under their belts can only do good for them. I get that they can have some more hiccups this year than what they all had last year because they were all excellent. And it's not always smooth sailing when you come up to the big leagues. And so I'm sure they'll stumble a little bit. But truly, the pure talent that all three of them have, the stuff that they all boast, especially Bybee, and Williams, I, it's hard to single out these guys, but I, I really think that they could grow into being a really underestimated rotation that takes a lot of 
people by surprise of how good they could be if they all pans out well. I want to ask about two injuries, again, related to the rotation or, uh, uh, in one case, a member, a potential member of the rotation. And first ask, is is Allen's um, shoulder all the way back? I know that he had a late season IL placement last year because of shoulder inflammation. Yeah, and that was mostly where they were just trying to monitor the young guys. They were trying to, because they were out of it at that point in the season, they didn't want to have the young guys go out there like, Tanner Bybee was so frustrated at that point in the season because he was also on the IL because of hip inflammation. And he was like, if this was any other point in the year, I would still be pitching and they want to do what's best for me. And I get it. But he, you could tell he was itching to get back out there. So it just seemed like it was over precautious of making sure that they weren't throwing too many innings in their first seasons in the big leagues. And it wasn't something that was like, like Logan's shoulder wouldn't carry into 2024. And then the other name I wanted to check in on is Daniel Espino, who at one point was thought of as one of the best, if not the best, starting pitching prospects in baseball, and then has just been felled by a number of injuries and hasn't pitched in a competitive setting in a couple of years. Do you know what the state of his health is and if he might be eyeing a return to the mound anytime soon? Well, he has some extensive uh, rehab to still go through. Uh, I mean, it was May goodness every day starts to go together but yeah i think it was may that he had his shoulder surgery so he was supposed to be out for 12 to 14 something like that months for recovering and so after having surgery for his capsule repair whatever it might have been he has to just spend so much time building back up and we talked to him already in camp you can tell that he is frustrated by it all, but is also trying to be super positive about it all. And so it's not like he is going to be on a mound today or tomorrow. It's going to be this summer. But he said his goal is to just be healthy, get himself healthy, and pitch in a game this year because it feels like it's been so long. So it's frustrating because this guy, you read his stuff. Oh, my goodness. You read all of the prospect uh, articles that have been written about him, MLB Pipeline writes about him. People who see him pitch in person just can't even believe it. I remember a couple years ago, when big league camp was sort of overlapping with minor league camp and big leaguers were like stopping on the field right beside them to look over and see him pitch because they were just like, oh my gosh, look at his stuff. Like he was blowing everyone away and he has the stuff to do that, but he just has to be able to stay on the mound. And right now he's just not, he's not able to do that. So we'll see as long as his shoulder recovers as quickly and perfectly as it possibly can, but he's just had one problem after the next. On our Cardinals preview, we talked about an old favorite returning in a veteran mentor role despite diminished production, Matt Carpenter. The Cleveland comp might be Carlos Carrasco. In Carrasco's case, he's on a minor league deal, but is he expected to make the roster? Is the hope just that he will impart some wisdom and also summon some good vibes? I don't know. I think that they're trying to figure that out right now. So going into the year, the starting five, as long as they stay healthy, healthy, will be the starting five. They don't have much starting pitching depth, so they're going to get those fringe guys like Carlos Carrasco, Xavier Curry, um, Ben Lively. You have Hunter Gaddis. You have like a handful of these types of guys that they're going to try to stretch out for right now. But some of those could end up just starting the year in the bullpen. We saw Curry do that last year. He was excellent for them, whether it be long relief or even at times he was just in for an inning. And he was really a weapon for them to use at any point in the game. 
And so he could just take that role again. Maybe they want to stretch him out fully and think he could get back into the rotation. And you have him waiting in AAA as the sixth man if something would happen up in the big leagues. And you have Carrasco fill that long relief role in the bullpen to start the year. It's They have to figure it out over the next six weeks, figure out who's better where. Would they benefit to have Carrasco's veteran leadership in that room? Probably. But it's just, will it make sense with their roster? Will he be able to fill a void for them? And will he be the best option for them? Uh, I think that there's going to be some question marks there, but it's definitely not off the table that he is filling some sort of a role this year. I don't want to say that he had a bad year um, because a 3-2-2 ERA and a, a FIP under three is nothing to to denigrate, but Emmanuel Classe had a down year for him. He certainly wasn't as good as he had been in his stellar 2022. So what do you attribute that dip to other than just relievers are volatile sometimes? <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. I really don't know how to explain what his year was last year. I've tried so many times and just trying to figure it out in my own brain, but I don't know exactly what it was that went wrong for him because he seemed like he was still the same guy. I know the pitch clock like threw him off a little bit at the beginning of the year and you could see that he was trying to adjust, and that made sense. And then once he settled in, his velocity was back. Everything seemed to be back, but he just wasn't as dominant as we saw the year before. And we just, it's hard to see, figure out exactly why. I don't even think he really knew why. He just wasn't missing as many bats. And the problem for him was that anything that was put in play was just this infield single, this weird broken bat bloop that shouldn't have been that detrimental, but somehow led to him blowing another save. And so I think the positive is that he was still this guy who's leading the way in saves and was still able to be consistently used day after day and not wear out and not have any fatigue or injury or anything like that. So to see the success remain in that regard, that consistently was still good and something to build off of. But I think it was concerning for everyone to see that he was a little bit more fragile, seeing more blown saves, having difficulties getting through some of his outings. And some of these weird little bleeder singles were causing Guardians fans to rip their hair out because they had to watch another frustrating ninth inning that led to a loss that they thought was finally going to be a win. And so I think that that's, I, I really don't know if they've been able to pinpoint exactly what caused him to have those issues other than a lot, a lot, a lot of bad luck, it seemed like. And I think that that's what they're hopeful is that was that you can chalk it up to that and he can just come back into 2024 and have the same dominance that he saw two years ago. How do you think that bullpen hierarchy stacks up behind him? And how good is Ben Lively going to be? Because he's on my minor league free agent draft team. So I need him to <laughs> get huh. some innings. That's the most important thing to me here. Yeah, we'll see. I think, I mean, he's in that group that they're going to try to stretch out as a starter for right now and then see if they can piece him into that bullpen. Uh, and I think six of the guys, I'm assuming they would start the year with eight relievers. I don't know why they wouldn't, especially early in the year. I think six of those guys are pretty much hammered in of what they've done in the past. You have Class A at the back end, and I think you'll have Scott Barlow being the guy that's bridging the gap to Class A. Then you have the same mix of guys that you've seen the last few years. You have Trevor Steffen, you have Nick Samlin, Eli Morgan. So you have those same types of names. And yes, last year was a little bit 
of a roller coaster of they were great, then they were bad, then they were great, then they were bad. And so um, I think they're hopeful that maybe those guys can fall back into what they were two years ago. But question marks, I think, are the last two spots in the bullpen, maybe, of will Curry be the long inning guy again and or long relief guy again? And you have Carrasco, maybe he beats him out for it instead. Or you can have maybe for that last spot, like a James Karinchuk, can he stay healthy and prove that he can command the ball again? consistently and work his way back into being consistent guy that you can turn to reliable could someone like ben lively sneak in there could someone I, it's just they they have a couple of different guys like kate smith is someone that i'm gonna keep an eye on i think this spring of just can he find his way up to make his debut right off the bat can he be someone who really dazzles this spring and just forces his way into this bullpen I, they have a couple guys that are those iffies of, okay, I'm going to keep my eye on. He could be in that last spot or two, but they still have to figure it out. You mentioned the outfield struggling, and I, I wonder what you make of Stephen Kwan's season because he was a league average hitter. His defensive metrics were better uh, last season than they were in his debut season. It seems like the the gap between his Woba and his ex-Woba tightened up, and so some of this might just be Babbitt luck, but he was less productive at the plate than he had been. So what are your expectations for him in 2024? Should we be looking at the midpoint between his two prior seasons? Yeah, I don't think that's a bad idea. It's just to go off of that for right now until we learn a little bit more about him because he did come on to the big league level and just take it by storm. And I remember every single day in that first like 10 day span and we were talking to him and we're like, sorry, you're probably tired of this and think this is what your whole career is going to be. I promise we don't have to bother you every day, but you're insanely good right now. And then last year it was a little bit quieter. It wasn't quite as successful offensively. Obviously he never took that to the outfield as he won another gold glove. And like you said, his defensive metrics are getting better. But I think that he was maybe caught in the middle of figuring out exactly what he should be of, okay, I'm this leadoff hitter where I'm supposed to just take pitches and draw walks and figure out how to get on base, regardless of what that means. And that's really, he was the epitome of that the year before. It was crazy how long it took him to swing and miss for the very first time. And it was, uh, he saw so many pitches and you saw him be more aggressive last year. And I think that was him consciously trying to see if that could be something that played out for him. And so I think that he's just trying to identify who he is as a major league hitter and what he's supposed to be and how he can be more aggressive, but still fill that lead off role the way that he's supposed to. And I think it was just a lot of just trying to figure this all out in that sophomore year. And so I think he's learned from those experiences and he be, can be able to go back and forth of being more confident of knowing when to just sit back and, and figure out when to take pitches and then also when to jump on them a little bit earlier and not have to stress so much about that leadoff title of what he carries and what he thinks those responsibilities should be. So I think that experience will allow him to maybe not be in his head as much as he was and allow him to just rely on natural instincts a little bit more of what he should be doing. And I guess we have circled back to where we started with the offense, but what is maybe the most intriguing position battle to you or the place where some non-roster invitee could sneak in? I mean, it's hard to assess the state of these competitions because they haven't even really started. Yeah, we haven't yeah. seen <laughs> games, but, you know, who's going to be shortstop? Uh, who's going to be playing center field or right field? These are important questions. 
Yeah. And I think you just nailed all of them. Um, <laughs> I think obviously shortstop's going to be something for Cleveland just because they have 800 of them that are competing for one <laughs> position. Um, I think Gabriel Arias is going to be someone who's just automatically the favorite. And I think it's kind of looked at maybe as his job to lose at this point, just because that's how they played it last year. And I know that there's a new manager now and you can't just go off of how they sort of approached it last year, but still it just seems like he should be the guy in theory that would be the best fit, but he just didn't put that into practice last year to prove it. And so as long as he can show this spring that he's made strides offensively, that he can hit lefties, which he struggled with last year and he never really had in the minors before. So that was a weird red flag and a concern of is this legit at the big league level can he be more than a platoon guy you don't really want that at shortstop and so I think that that's going to be something that he needs to show to be able to win that so I think shortstop will be interesting to keep an eye on as weird as it is to say back up first base like that's the weirdest answer I think I could have ever given but whether or not De Los Santos for the rule five pick if he'll be able to stay on this roster and take that spot from Kyle Manzardo. I think fans are just dying to see Manzardo get into this mix. But if he's able to force his way onto this roster, I think fans will be excited. But I just don't know if they can have it where both of them are on this roster. It just it doesn't make sense. And it seems like overload um, when they don't really have much defensive versatility. But I think that'll be fun to watch and see which young guy ends up winning in the end. And then you also have right field, center field. It, can Miles Straw hit and prove that he can be the everyday center fielder? Will they have to move Quan into center? Will you have Florial? You have so many center fielders on this team now that they could put anyone out there. So I think that just outfield in general, of uh, I'm excited to see Florial into this mix. Um, I think he could be better than what maybe the Yankees were thinking that he would be after those quick brief stints up in the didn't quite match the production he had in the minors. So I, I think he could pan out in Cleveland. So I think it's going to be outfield shortstop backup positions, honestly, everywhere, but pitching staff at this point in third base. So you need <laughs> to make sure you're keeping an eye on. <laughs> and if Arias does seize that starting shortstop job, does that just leave Brian Rocchio on the bench? What's the outlook for him? It could, but you also have Tyler Freeman. I'm telling you, right. I, I wish 800 <laughs> was an exaggeration, but it's really not. They have so many middle infielders, and it's crazy that they have all of these guys to sift through. You still have Angel Martinez, you have Jose Tena, you have these guys who are young but starting to make their way to be big league ready. And where are they, where are they all going to go? Um, and it's tough for them. So right now it's between... Rokio, Freeman, Arias, who are all ready to go right now. And so do you need three shortstops? No. I think it's helpful that you have Freeman who can play all over. He proves that he could also do first base, corner outfield. He can be versatile. So maybe that could be helpful for him in like a utility spot and help with outfield infield as well. Maybe that can then open up a window for another infielder to also be on there if you have an outfielder. But it's just, it's really tough. So they're going to have to figure out more the depth pieces of who they're going to be able to also carry behind Arias, behind Naylor, behind the starting outfield, whatever it might be. I think those are going to be the biggest headaches for this team. 
I feel bad that we haven't talked about Jose Ramirez because he doesn't get enough people talking about him on a national level. And now we're not even talking about him on the team preview for the Guardians. But I guess it just reflects the fact that on a roster full of question marks, he is not one <laughs> to the extent that yeah. I don't even really have a question about him. He's Jose Ramirez. What is there to worry about? Right. So I just wanted to acknowledge him. And uh, if you <laughs> think there's anything that we need to discuss specifically about him, please do. But I will tee you up for our traditional closing question, which is what constitutes success for this team this season? What is a realistic goal or what is a realistic fan expectation? Oh, man, that's so it's so difficult to know right now because I went into 2022 expecting them to enter a rebuild year. And then they were so successful and made it to the postseason. And then I thought they would be able to build on that for 2023 and it would be fun year just like it was the year before. And then they were the opposite and they had really a down year. They battled injuries. So it's so hard to know when they're so young year after year because there's yeah, youth brings unpredictability. And so if everything goes right, you could have a repeat of 2022. This could be a really, really fun team with guys who don't really know any better, just like they did two years ago. It's just, why not us? Why can't we win? Because we're really young. We're fun. We can just have a blast. I think having Austin Hedges back in that mix will help that locker room stay a lot lighter this year than what it was last year. But then they could also have everything go wrong again. And you could have guys struggle as they're transitioning up into the big leagues. And that could have a lot of hiccups and vote figuring out what to do in his first managerial season. It, there's a lot of potential to have a ro rocky year. And so it could be 90 wins. It could be right around where they were last year, that 75 mark. It's tough to know. And so I think for right now, just because what we saw the offense was last year, I, and they didn't really add to it. Austin Hedges isn't the bat that they needed to be able to say <laughs> that this is a big difference in run producing this year. So I think that's a huge concern. I think that the fact that this offense did not produce last year and they haven't improved upon it, it's a big red flag of, I don't know if they're going to be a crazy contender this year. They have to prove that they can have some guys come to life that weren't last year. And so I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're still finding a way to compete in the Central just because it is the Central. And <laughs> it's been difficult the last few years to have anyone really run away with it. So every year, luckily for them, seems to be within reach of winning some sort of division title. So I think fans can expect at least that much. And maybe once we're a, a month or two into the season, we can have a better idea of if this is realistic or not, just because you need so many young players to be able to do so much. And that's a lot to ask to be able to be successful. All right. Well, everyone pick up your eclipse glasses. Don't <laughs> stare at the sun without the proper protection. Hopefully that sun will shine on the Guardians after opening day and you can read about them one way or another at MLB.com via Mandy Bell. Thank you very much, Mandy. Thank you. All right. For anyone who's been steaming this entire time about the Midwest conversation in the intro, here's a note from producer Shane, who is a Clevelander. And he says, as a Clevelander, I can confirm that Cleveland is, in fact, part of the Midwest. 
I think most Clevelanders would agree with that. I think part of the confusion is that Cleveland is so associated with this other thing called the Rust Belt, which extends as far east as, say, Syracuse or beyond. Clearly, anything in New York State isn't Midwest, at least by any reasonable definition. But there are parts of New York that are Rust Belt, ditto Pennsylvania. And I think that's where some of the confusion with Cleveland comes from. Because even if it is in the Midwest, it's rightly more representative of the Rust Belt than the rest of the Midwest. As I said to Shane, I'm just glad I was not imagining that there's at least some confusion or disagreement on this point. And he says, no, it is a real phenomenon. I went on a first date with someone from Des Moines who asked me what it was like to grow up on the East Coast. And Shane says, I'm from Shaker Heights. So there, happy to have a Clevelander as a producer today. Also, some slight self-promotion. If you've caught my cryptic comments over the past few weeks about talking to various executives, Sam Fold, Chris Young, Jerry DePoto, I said I was talking to them for a story at The Ringer, and that story has been published. It's about a trend that I have noted on the podcast, that after a couple of decades post-Moneyball of former players and former major leaguers specifically not getting GM jobs or whatever title the top executives are using these days. That seems to be swinging back in the other direction. You've got Chris Getz, the three guys I just mentioned, Brandon Gomes, Craig Breslow, etc. So I talked to all 10 of the former major leaguers who are assistant GMs, GMs, or POBOs, chief baseball officers, etc., plus Billy Bean and Andrew Friedman and Dave Dombrowski, got all their thoughts on why this is happening. It's interesting to me. Maybe it'll be interesting to you. I'll link to it on the show page. Another couple of closing notes. Earlier this week, we talked about Jen Powell, the minor league umpire who is going to be working MLB spring training, which puts her on the precipice of becoming the first female MLB ump. We discussed the importance of that milestone. We discussed how it was overdue. Speaking of overdue milestones, Jenny Kavnar was hired by NBC Sports California this week, becoming the first female primary play-by-play announcer in MLB history. Again, no real reason why it should have taken that long, but it's good news. The bad news maybe is that to hear her, you have to watch A's games, or we could reframe that and say that if you have to watch A's games, at least you get to hear Jenny Kavnar. Sometimes when you're trying to be a trailblazer, you don't get to pick the primo assignment. That stinks, but it can be the way it works. For any A's fans who are still paying attention to this team, I hope she helps make their probably last season in Oakland a little more tolerable, and I hope she gets to be heard by a bigger audience, and that either the A's in the future or the next team she works for will be better than the 2024 A's. Though the 2024 A's will probably be better than the 2023 A's. I know that's not saying much. Congrats to Jenny Kavnar, and I hope she's the first of many. In other slightly less notable news, but still of interest to listeners of this podcast, we've talked in the past about Eduardo Escobar's off-the-charts fondness for Fogo de Chao, the Brazilian steakhouse chain. He's essentially a mascot for the company. He eats there all the time. He takes his teams out there. He credits Fogo power for his success. And so some Effectively Wild listeners were dismayed concerned when it was reported that Eduardo Escobar had signed a minor league contract with the Toronto Blue Jays because there's no Fogo in Toronto. What would Escobar be without Fogo power? Because let's be honest, he had a tough time last year even with the Fogo effect. Could he get his Fogo fix when the Blue Jays are on the road, assuming he makes the team? Would he be able to maintain his hold on a roster spot without frequent infusions of Fogo? Well, I've just made an important discovery. I was trying to figure out what the closest Fogo to Toronto was. And in the process of researching that question, I found a page on the Fogo website, fogotochow.com slash location slash Toronto. And this page says Toronto, Canada. 
coming soon. Now, I don't think we can credit Eduardo Escobar for making this happen. So after further research, the plans for a Fogo in Toronto were announced last year, and it will be located at the corner of Blue Jays Way and Mercer Street. This is about a six-minute walk from Rogers Center. It's right next door. So no, Escobar has not manifested a Fogo out of thin air. Just the act of his signing did not summon a Fogo. However, it is quite possible that this signing was facilitated by Fogo, that he would not have considered the Blue Jays if Fogo would not be in the neighborhood. So I don't know exactly when it is slated to open, but I do see a LinkedIn page that says that the first two Fogos in Canada are opening in Toronto and Vancouver spring 2024. Perfect timing. So should he make the Toronto roster, Escobar now has two opening days to anticipate. Opening day for the Jays and opening day in Toronto for the Brazilian brand that has stolen his heart. He proposed to his wife there, remember. That's the significance that Fogo holds for him. He is not signing somewhere where his access to steak will be endangered. And not just any steakhouse, he's got to go to Fogo. We hope that you will go to Patreon and support this podcast. Help us keep making it. Help us keep it ad-free. This postscript has not, in fact, featured an ad for Fogo. Not a paid one, anyway. And to get yourself access to some perks, just go to patreon.com slash effectivelywild, as have the following five listeners. Ryan Moore, John Tolbert, Max Jenikov, Liz Pinella, and Jeff Silver. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, monthly bonus episodes, playoff live streams, prioritized email answers, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships, and so much more. Check out all the options at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. You can also contact us via email. Send your questions and comments to podcast at fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back to banter and preview next week. Talk to you then. Baseball is a simple